This is Phantom Power. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power. I'm Mac Haygood. It's the end of the year. I hope everyone is easing into a lovely holiday mode. (laughs) Um, This will be our last episode of this calendar year, but we will definitely have more to come. Um, Probably not another show dropping until mm, mid-January, perhaps early February. We've had a little bit of scheduling trouble. I know I promised you that our next guest actually was supposed to be today uh, would be noise theorist Emily Thompson. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of trouble getting our schedules to congeal. Things got a little complicated on her end. Then they got a little complicated on my side. And we're going to have to reschedule. You know, it's just the typical end of the academic semester, you know, train wreck type situation. But we're going to make that interview happen for sure. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be great. So stay tuned for that. I'm also having an interview with Carolyn Birdsell sometime soon. Another another little bit of a scheduling snafu with her, but that will be coming um, early in 2024 as well. So what will we talk about today? We're going to talk about my own research into tinnitus. This is something that I've sort of been working on for maybe a month now, is thinking about how I could start to talk about my tinnitus research on this podcast. So um, I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But before we get into that, I thought I'd give you a little bit of an update on the legislative situation here in Ohio, since I brought that up earlier this season, there was this bill called SB 83 that was going to basically destroy tenure for public university faculty here in Ohio, among other things. It was also going to curtail what we could talk about in the classroom. It was going to make it easy for right-wing trolls to monitor what we taught in our classes. And thank goodness, luckily, that bill did not make it to a vote for this calendar year or this legislative session. So I think we can not worry about that, at least for a little while. I don't know how long that situation will last. I don't know if we have to worry about it next year. We probably do. (sighs) But man, that's a <laughs> what you just heard was me uh, heaving a sigh of relief. Sadly, um, there was another bill that was sort of causing a lot of worry and concern in our household, um, and that's because my wife is a psychologist who works a lot with trans kids, and they did just pass the bill that she was worried about, which really affects health care for trans kids. Um, and, and it's a terrible thing. Um, so, uh, my heart goes out to everyone who's going to be affected by this, the kids, their families, 
um, you know, this is just what we're dealing with in the United States these days. On a happier note, and I don't know if this will be of interest to some of you, I think we've got a lot of audio nerds in this audience, but I got a new microphone. Um, and so I just, I don't know, thought I would talk about it cause I'm excited about it for the first five years of this podcast. I have used a Rode NT1A, which is a large diaphragm condenser mic and kind of for those who aren't too into mics, it's sort of like a larger mic where you, it's a side address mic. You sort of the speak into the side of the mic, um, is that what you call it? A side? No, I guess it's called a. Is it a, called a front address mic? Now I'm now I'm confusing myself. <laughs> Let's see. How can I put this? I'm trying to figure out how to help you visualize this. Let's say your hand is a microphone, okay, and you're holding your hand up in front of your face, and your palm is facing towards your face, and you talk into your palm. That would be the type of mic that I've been using for the past five years. And they're very sensitive. They pick up a lot of sound. Um, I liked the way my voice sounded on that mic. However, it's not typically what people use for broadcast type applications like this podcasting situation where people will usually use a mic more like the Shure SM7B, which if, okay, if my hand was the microphone, I would be talking, I would point my fingers at my mouth and then I would talk into my fingers. Is this a really good <laughs> analogy? I don't know. This is going downhill quickly. But anyway, it's more of like the type of mic that you see podcasters using all the time, right? It's like, it's like if you had a Red Bull can and then you stuck a black piece of foam over the end and you talked into the end of the Red Bull can. Yeah, anyway. It's a dynamic type mic. Um, I've been having trouble with my Rode NT1A. I don't know what's going on. I, I The first episode I did of this podcast for this season, I was having phase problems with the mic, which is weird because there was only one mic that I was using. I don't know if my voice was bouncing back off of the laptop screen when I was reading things off the laptop or or when I was talking to guests. It could also be I was using this software to um, record remotely called Squadcast. Um, and I don't know if maybe Squadcast had some issues. Anyway, I was not liking how my voice was sounding most recently with the Rode NT1A. I borrowed a mic from my department at Miami University called the Rode NT-USB Mini. And that's like a little version of sort of like the mic that I already had, um, but it plugs in with USB. Man, I hated the sound of that mic. Really not good in my opinion. So um, I used a little bit of research funds and I got this mic that I'm talking into now. It's called the Universal Audio SD1. So it's a dynamic mic. It looks like the Shure SM7B, the kind of famous broadcast mic. But... Um, it has some additional features where you can model other mics because Universal Audio is a company that's pretty famous for creating software versions of classic recording hardware. And so basically 
the idea is I could make this mic sound like a bunch of other mics, which sounds like a fun thing to play around with. I'm not using that right now. I just plugged the thing in and got going. But that's my mic story. For those of you <laughs> who are interested, and my apologies to those of you who are not. So let's talk about today's episode. I'm going to share with you my research into tinnitus from a cultural and media studies and sound studies approach. And for our patrons, I'll be sharing my own what's good at the end of the show where I'll recommend some music and books and audiobooks that I've been loving this year. You can become a patron for as little as three bucks a month at patreon.com slash phantom power. And maybe I'll talk a little bit more about this mic <laughs> as well, because I, I, I want to talk about like why I actually am really enjoying it right now. But that'll be later. I think I've talked enough about the mic at this point. If there's anyone who isn't familiar, tinnitus is ringing, buzzing, humming, whooshing, jingling, other kinds of sounds perceived to issue from the head or ears. And specifically, I'm talking about what doctors and audiologists call subjective tinnitus. They, there's another term called objective tinnitus, which refers to tinnitus that the doctor can hear when they put a stethoscope up to your ear. There's actually some physical thing that they can hear clicking or pulsing in your ear. And they're like, yeah, I hear that too. They call that objective. Actually, tinnitus really blurs the lines between what we mean when we say objective and subjective. Um, but I'll get into that in a little bit. That type of tinnitus, objective tinnitus is very rare, but subjective tinnitus is experienced by somewhere between Five and 30% of the world population, according to the National Institutes of Health here in the United States. I've also seen an article in uh, the Journal of um, the American Medical Association that suggests that in a given year, somewhere between 1% and 14% of adults experience tinnitus at some time during that year. Um, and again, these are global estimates. Most of these people who experience tinnitus are not really bothered by it or, you know, they probably only perceive it in certain situations, which I'll talk about uh, in a bit. But so for most people, it's really not an issue. Tinnitus is not an issue, but for some people, tinnitus can cause functional impairment, trouble thinking, emotional distress, sleep issues, all of which can substantially and negatively impact their quality of life. And so this is problematic tinnitus or what we might just call suffering from tinnitus as opposed to merely experiencing it. And so the Journal of the American Medical Association study, uh, it puts the number at perhaps 2% of the population that suffers in this way, at least for some period of time. Here's what I want to say at the outset. The last thing I want to do is problematize tinnitus for anyone. For most people, it's 
really just a benign curiosity or a very minor annoyance that just goes away when their attention moves on to other things. Even for folks who truly suffer from tinnitus, most people eventually habituate to it and they can get back to their normal lives. Our ideas about tinnitus can have profound influence on how we experience tinnitus. So I just want to start off by saying that if you hear tinnitus, it's extremely common and it's not a big deal. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or your hearing. So maybe just notice it, say, ah, oh, that's, that's odd, whatever, and just go back to doing whatever you're doing and it's probably going to go away. So with that, <laughs> now that I've gotten that disclaimer out of the way, like I said, I want to introduce you to my research on the topic. And this is going to be a general introduction into how I got interested in tinnitus and some basic facts about it. And then in future episodes, if y'all find this topic interesting, I can really get into the specifics of some of my articles and book chapters in future episodes. So I've studied tinnitus for over a decade now, and like a lot of people and their favorite objects of study in academia, I have a very long and personal relationship with tinnitus. I've had tinnitus as long as I can remember. In my mind, I trace it back to coming down with scarlet fever as a small child. Scarlet fever is this rather antebellum-sounding bacterial infection that can sometimes lead to hearing loss. One of my earliest memories as a child is a fever dream. I couldn't have been more than five years old, and I think someone must have told me that my white blood cells were fighting off an infection in my bloodstream because I was in bed and I was hearing this roaring in my ears like a waterfall, and I decided that this was the blood rushing through my body. And at the same time, I had this vision of red ants and white ants battling it out in the tunnels of my veins. And this just went on and on and on. Like I was in, I guess, some kind of dream state. And I had a very high fever at the time. So, you know, reality was a little fuzzy. The whole thing didn't make literal sense, but it made a kind of embodied sense. And for the rest of my childhood, and actually well into my adulthood, I just thought that my tinnitus was the background noise of the blood rushing through my body, like some kind of waterfall-fed subterranean river. my research, I'm really fascinated by other people's tinnitus origin stories. Everybody with tinnitus has one, and these stories are very important to them. The psychologist Alfred Adler was fascinated with people's earliest memories, and he created a method for their use in psychotherapy. Now, you might think, well, of course he did. Psychologists unearth the old traumas that are the root of their patient's present-day troubles. 
But actually, that's not what Adler was up to with early memories. The empirical truth of these earliest memories was really beside the point for Adler. For Adlerians, people live in a fictional reality built with stories that they themselves create and cling to as if they were the truth. Your earliest memory, therefore, is a fiction. It's useful not for what it tells you about your past, but rather for what it tells us about your present understanding of yourself and your world. That's not to say that I treat people's tinnitus origin stories as fictions, but I'm open to the idea that these stories can often say more than the teller even recognizes. These stories about tinnitus contain deeply held beliefs about sound, about the auditory system, about the physical and social world we live in, about the role of technology, and about the person's view of self. As for my own tinnitus origin story, I'm sure we could delve into the image it presents of a solitary existence wrapped in a hallucinatory and overpowering conflation of bodily sensations and ideas. <laughs> that sounds a lot like me. <laughs> but hey, I'm not paying you guys to analyze me, so I think I'll uh, refrain from analyzing that any deeper. But my tinnitus origin story does reflect what I find so fascinating about tinnitus today. Tinnitus exists in a liminal space. It smears the distinctions we make between body and mind, real and imaginary, subject and object, sound and not sound. Tinnitus is real, but it's literally all in my head. When I suffer from tinnitus, I other its sound as an intrusive presence, and yet this sound is actually the sound of myself. Physiologically, tinnitus is the sound of my body-mind, and yet phenomenologically, tinnitus waxes and wanes in relation to the sounds in the air around me, almost as if tinnitus itself was a sound out in the air and not merely in my own head. In fact, when I lie in bed with the windows open on an early spring night, I'm never sure whether the crickets I'm hearing are in me or without me. As phantom sound, tinnitus haunts the edges of our auditory imagination, and yet for the tinnitus sufferer, it can be incredibly, oppressively real. With all that said, I think there's still some truth to my tinnitus origin story. Hearing loss can result from scarlet fever, as I said. And even though my hearing has always fallen within the normal range, at least so far, clinical studies have found that even small amounts of hearing loss can result in tinnitus, as the brain turns up the volume to compensate for what's missing. And when the brain does this, it amplifies the inherent noise of the nervous system. This is a phenomenon called automatic gain control. It's sort of like when your eye dilates in low light. 
I've interviewed the neurophysiologist who came up with the canonical model of how problematic tinnitus emerges in the auditory system. His name's Pavel Yastrobov. One of the fundamental axioms of his neurophysiological model of tinnitus is that the auditory system is homeostatic, meaning the auditory system regulates itself in relation to its sonic environment. It turns down the volume in loud spaces and it turns up the volume in quiet ones. Or as Yastropov put it to me, the auditory system needs sound like the body needs food. So if you have hearing loss, or even if you're just sitting in a quiet place, your auditory system turns up the volume and your brain is more likely to misrecognize its own electrical activity as sound. So it's comparable to a sound engineer turning up the volume on a weak signal and thus amplifying the mixing board's inherent noise. And in 1953, there was this classic study done in which 94% of what we would call normal hearing people, 94% of them did experience tinnitus when they were placed in the dead silence of an anechoic chamber. And of course, this brings us back to the cage story that uh, I talked about in a previous episode. So this tinnitus, this experience, it's not a problem in itself. It's a natural phenomenon. Most of us notice tinnitus occasionally. We don't think much of it, and our brain then filters it out because it doesn't seem important. Now, for some folks, there are a couple of problems, and these problems often are tied up with one another. So for some of us, the filters in the auditory subconscious, which is sort of like the gatekeeper that decides what we actively hear and don't hear, these filters don't work so well. The other problem is the problem that arises when an affect of fear emerges and attaches to the sound of tinnitus, and the person begins to suffer from it rather than merely experiencing it. Once this happens, the tinnitus sufferer soundscape becomes akin to what Steve Goodman in his book Sonic Warfare calls an ecology of fear. Tinnitus sufferers realize that they inhabit and navigate a vibrational matrix of loud presences, which threaten to trigger future tinnitus, and quiet absences, which reveal phantom sounds that were lurking in the background, waiting to make themselves heard. As philosopher Hassana Sharp writes about fearful affects, nature suddenly appears to be seething with signification. Everything and anything can seem to have a message of either hope or doom for the fearful. So neuroscientists, of course, don't really think in terms of Spinozan affect theory, <laughs> the way so many of us uh, cultural scholars do these days. The way that they're going to frame this sort of issue is in terms of a re-networking of neurons, a remapping of the brain in which the perception of tinnitus and the auditory pathways gets linked to the limbic system. So that's the brain's so-called emotion center. And then in turn, that gets linked to the autonomic nervous system, which controls things such as heart rate and breathing. And so we get this linkage 
of an emotional embodied fight or flight reaction to the tinnitus. But of course, there's no running from the tinnitus. Both the threat and the threatened reside in the same body. So these neurological connections have a tendency to strengthen in a vicious circle as the perception that tinnitus is an aural threat encourages the auditory pathways to turn up the volume to hear the threat better, further increasing the volume and persistence of tinnitus because the brain thinks it's important to pay attention to. So let me tell you a tinnitus origin story that I mentioned in my book, Hush, Media, and Sonic Self-Control. These are the words of a gentleman I'll call Terry. So I'm going to quote him now. When I woke up from the ear surgery, there was a low-level humming or electricity in the air, some kind of crackling or something. It seemed strange to me. I thought, what the heck is that? I'd never heard anything like it before. I asked my wife, can you hear that? And she said, no, I can't hear that. When I went back to the doctor for a post-surgical checkup, I asked about it, and that's the first time I heard the word tinnitus. We didn't have a long discussion, and I had the impression that it would go away. But then I kept going back to the doctor saying, it's not going away. And that's when I heard that sometimes it doesn't go away. And that was pretty scary. I had been married for about two years, and we had a new baby, so I was involved with that. So I had a lot of things to take my mind off of it, but there were times that I would sit and I would just cry. And I would tell my wife, I don't know if I can live with this forever. So that was Terry. He was 38 when his ear surgery left him with tinnitus. He was 63 when I met him at a Midwestern tinnitus support group meeting. During the intervening 25 years, he had been haunted by phantom sounds. There was sound like gas escaping from a cylinder. And there was also this sort of hard insect type sound that sounded sort of like cicadas. And eventually he started hearing his own pulse in his ears. Sometimes the pulse would go away, but the hissing sound was always there. Tinnitus changed the way that Terry listened to his world and navigated his days. In an interview, he told me that he had come to realize we live in a loud society where people take hearing for granted. His world became a patchwork of what he called loud environments that he had to avoid or pass through as quickly as possible in the fear that these loud sounds would make his tinnitus worse. Terry used to be a microbiologist, but he switched to working in IT because the laboratory fans were too loud in microbiology. He used to enjoy going to the movies, but there were too many loud explosions in them. He would love to go ballroom dancing with his wife again, but the music is so loud. He tried going to bars with his college-aged daughter, but he just can't. Sometimes he wouldn't realize that a place is too loud, and then he would leave and his ears would be screaming. I'm an emotional guy and I get depressed and very anxious, he told me. I can't be outgoing and go places with other couples. Terry pays someone to mow his lawn now. On the other hand, sometimes the world is not too loud for Terry, but instead all too quiet. He's not a fan of libraries, for example. 
It's not easy to sit in a quiet chair and read, he told me. Quiet spaces are where the phantom sounds materialize most viscerally and haunt Terry most fearsomely. Quiet spaces like his office. I've broken down crying at work when I have to think and I can't, he told me. Then there are all the other non-sonic aspects of Terry's environment that become charged with the potential danger of triggering his tinnitus. Sleep had always been a refuge from the noise, he told me. But twice in the last couple of years before I interviewed him, his tinnitus had gotten so loud that it had invaded his dreams. Since this had never happened before, he tried to identify the cause. He asked, did I eat something too salty? I cut caffeine out already. Sometimes I think vitamins make my tinnitus worse. I tried antidepressants a couple of months ago, and that seemed to make it worse. Problems at work when IT systems aren't talking to each other, that can be stressful. That can make my tinnitus worse. So that's Terry. That's what he told me. And really, I could have selected practically any tinnitus sufferer that I've interviewed or helped on a telephone support line during my years of research on tinnitus sufferers and their media use. The specific circumstances surrounding the onset of each individual's tinnitus are unique. Maybe it was a loud work environment, maybe it was rifle hunting, or an illness, or a loud concert. Quite often, tinnitus just kind of shows up and its cause is a mystery. However, certain dynamics emerge in every case in which someone becomes a tinnitus sufferer like Terry, as opposed to someone who merely experiences tinnitus and rarely takes notice of it or thinks about it. Research has shown that the volume and nature of the tinnitus don't matter. So some people have a very loud tinnitus and don't seem to mind it, while others are driven crazy by a relatively quiet sound. Now, I should say that it's a little bit hard to compare the volume of things that no one else can hear but the subject. But there are techniques of volume and pitch matching tinnitus in audiologists' offices. So that's the source of comparison here. And what the finding is, is basically there's no particular inherent timbre or volume of tinnitus that makes some people suffer from it worse than others. It really is more about the reaction to the tinnitus than the tinnitus itself. And I don't say that to discount the suffering, the sometimes profound suffering of people, nor do I say it to victim blame. This is simply what clinicians have found, and it's happened in my own life. Up through my teens and early 20s, I noticed my tinnitus, but it never bothered me. I was in clubs all the time, mostly going to shows, but sometimes playing in shows, never with hearing protection. I'd go to really loud shows, come out with my ears ringing, and I'd kind of wear it as a badge of honor, right? Like, <laughs> that was a night well spent. My ears are really ringing loud. Then one night, I spent a long evening improvising some extremely loud, doomy post-rock with some guys <laughs> in a padded practice space. I don't know if I've maybe compare it to Godspeed You Black Emperor for those of you who know that band. And afterward, my ears were just going crazy and I lost it. I, I just freaked out. 
I was hounded by fear and regret and even depression. Honestly, I was depressed for months after I, I, uh, the, the ringing somehow became attached to this affect of fear for me in a way it never had before. And it became this oppressive thing. And so I noticed it more and more and it seemed to just grow as this presence. And ever since I've really had a much more careful and tenuous relationship with my own ears and auditory system. And in some ways that was probably a really good thing. Um, I definitely take care of my hearing a lot more than I did up until that point in my mid twenties. Um, but in some ways it's really not a lot of fun. <laughs> Why did that affect of fear attach to the sound that time? I can't really know for sure. But I can say that I was going through a really difficult period of my life more generally. Um, I, I was kind of lost. I was kind of directionless. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. I wasn't having the kind of success I had hoped for. And that flare up was the first one that I had, but it certainly wasn't the last one. So. I've since come to have a better relationship with the phantom sound that I experience. And in some ways, I'm even grateful to my tinnitus because it's taught me more about sound than any other single book or scholar or entity. Tinnitus has really been my guide in sound studies. It's been my Virgil leading me through this shadow world of sound. It's taught me how high the stakes can be when it comes to the perception and control of sound. And it's given me new ways to think about why and how we use our media devices. Because a lot of people who suffer from tinnitus use sound therapy as prescribed, so to speak, by an audiologist who use sound enrichment to help them control their tinnitus and manage their relationship to it. But a lot of other people use media just sort of as a folk remedy, not through the direction of any particular expert, but because they've intuited that the distraction of media or the soundscape provided by media can help them manage their relationship, help them remediate their own experience of tinnitus. So in future episodes, I'd like to talk about that research, the connections that I've made between tinnitus and media and disability theory, and politics, and neoliberalism. There's this nasty knot of tinnitus in our society that I've really been picking at in my research now for over a decade. But today, I just wanted to start with the personal dimension and to let people know, you know, those who are really suffering from tinnitus, I really respect what you're going through. And there are tools that can really help. Tinnitus retraining therapy, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, mindfulness-based tinnitus therapy. For me, Zen Buddhist meditation helped enormously. But part of that healthy respect that I have for tinnitus involves accepting that I'm not in control of it. 
that I could have a bad day with it at any time. And so I, I don't ever want to come across as sounding like, oh, well, I've got my tinnitus under control. Why can't you? It, 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 I, I'm really coming to it from a much more humble perspective out of respect to this entity who cohabitates my mind. <laughs> we live in a society that thinks there should be a solution for everything. We live in a society that has little patience for people complaining about a sound that no one else can hear. Those factors themselves exacerbate the suffering of tinnitus for so many people. So if there's one thing that I've learned in the past decade of studying this, it's that impatient solutionism is not the answer. But more on that in the future. If you'd like more episodes on this topic, let me know. I have research to share on the role of media in the diagnosis and treatment of tinnitus. Uh, I have work I've done on the representation of tinnitus in film, what I call the tinnitus trope. I've got recent research that I did on the lingering influence of Enlightenment era uh, aesthetics on our understanding and experience of tinnitus in the West. And I could talk about contemporary composers with tinnitus. There's, there's more. <laughs> I could go on and on about this topic, but I think I'll just drop one of these every now and then if folks are interested. So that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Remember that you can find show notes and transcripts at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to the show there. I'd love a review on Spotify or Apple. It's been a minute since anyone's dropped one of those. And if you can, support us by being a patron at patreon.com slash phantompower. Today's episode was written and edited by yours truly, Mac Haygood. Our music comes from Joel Steisen's. It's a piece called A Sharp, named after his tinnitus. I'll have a link in the show notes to Joel's music. And perhaps in the future, we can talk about Joel's experience, which was profoundly changed. His musical identity was really changed by his tinnitus and the way that he came to work with it instead of against it. We will see you sometime in late January or early February. Take care.